But when she was born, let the stress games begin. No, when she was born, I remember, I remember my whole mentality had to change because I just couldn't train any as long as I wanted to, because she was there, you know, in the afternoon, I had to be in the house with her so she could have her nap. I had to leave training at a certain time because she just couldn't handle it anymore. And the responsibility of being a parent made me really put limits on my training. And I remember thinking all my life, I was like, if I just train a little bit more, then I could just be a little bit better. And then I can just win that little extra match and maybe the Olympics one day. And that was the first time when I was just like, this is all I can do. You know, I just reached my limit and I'm like, I cannot do physically any more than this because I have to obviously prioritize her. That was Shireen Shalm, four-time Olympian for Canada in women's epée fencing on this episode of Silver is the New Gold. I'm Karen Lonso, and this is Silver is the New Gold, a podcast that shares stories and insights about women's participation in sports after 35. On this episode, I'm chatting with Shireen Shah, four-time Olympian for Canada in women's epée fencing and the most decorated elite fencer to ever originate in Canada, at least on the women's side. And even though we're really close in age, she retired from competitive fencing right around the time that I picked up a nepe for the first time. So, while we've never met up on either side of the on-guard lines, I'm happy to say that I got to meet her virtually and chat with her about her journey into fencing, her road to the Olympics, and life with sports post-retirement. This was a conversation that I didn't know I needed. We had a blast, and I hope you will too. Here she is to share her story. Hi, Shireen. Welcome to Silver's New Gold, and thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you for asking, Karen. I'm very honored. So let's start by going back to the beginning and how you got started in fencing. Um, This is one of the few perks of being a mouthy kid, is that it gets the attention of teachers who want a good challenge. And I guess I was obnoxious enough that the local fencing teacher, he was also a junior high school teacher, So he knew how to manage rambunctious kids. Um, I saw him across the parking lot and I said, hey, skinny, because he was quite skinny. And then when I went to apologize to him later, because my parents were quite strict and I had to go (laughs) apologize and show reverence. So I went to apologize and he said, well, well, maybe one day you can come and join the fencing club. And I said, okay. So that was it. And then after that, he was totally the coolest teacher of the whole town. And Brooks has had some great teachers, so you can tell how amazing he was. We're still good friends. We message every couple of weeks. I see him every time I go home. Yeah, chit-chat on the phone. He's like as close as as my own brother is to me, so he's a great guy. So you started in foil, or you started in in epi, or Yeah, I started in foil because basically everyone starts in foil, I think, right? There's very few places that start just in epee. So I learned the basic moves of foil and quickly dropped it as soon as I realized I'm a terrible foil fencer (laughs) and I cannot parry to save my life. I had a bet with one of my coaches that if I ever won an Olympic medal and I'd managed to parry during that match, I would give him the medal. And he was like, I do not expect a medal from you at all. (laughs) Yeah, I know because my parry is so bad. So... um, so he started me in foil just to teach the basics. And then after that, there was a, an opening on the, on the epee team for the 
provincial team to go to the Canada Winter Games. And my coach was like, do you want to fence FA? And I was like, well, it looks weird. And he said, why don't you give it a try? You can make the team. And I said, okay. So we started to learn FA and, and I was much better at that one because it's, it's less structured and mm-hmm. you can use a bit more psychology and less tactical plan, like not less tactical planning. You can use more psychology and manipulation and less technique to win the match. And that's what I really liked about it. And so at that point, Epe wasn't in the Olympics. I don't think so. so. It started in 96, right? I think that was the first yeah. Olympics where it was. And so it wasn't in the Olympics yet, but it was, it was already in the World Championships. So it was only a matter of time until it was in the Olympics. And I remember my coach, he was born in Liverpool and he said, you're really getting in on the ground floor here. He had this like cute little accent and <laughs> he still does. And That's pretty um, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I never knew what he was saying. He confused my mom it's like, telling her that I needed new buddy wires. And she was like, what are buddy wires? And we're like body wires. And she's like, oh, I don't understand your accent. So he, he was like, you're really getting in on the ground floor. You can really, you know, you can really do something in this sport if you really put your mind to it. And I said, okay, well, we'll see. And I really had no goals outside of, I wanted him to think I was cool and I loved spending time with him. That was it. And I loved that he could, he would invite all my friends to the club. There was never like a limit of, because it was hosted at the school right after school, right? Mm-hmm. So he would teach and then just have fencing right after school. So it was super convenient. And because he was such a cool teacher, all the kids wanted to join. So they'd come and fence for a month and then, you know, go off and do their other sports and, And he was just, he was such a welcoming guy that I never, you know, sometimes when you become a teenager and you, lots of especially social people or especially females just want to drop sports because it's not fun anymore because they don't have any of their friends in the sport. And I don't know if he knew that and that's why he was trying to, you know, keep kids involved or he just loved it so much that he opened it up to everyone. But there was always my friends in it just because he was like, sure, come and fence, come and challenge Shireen, come and, you know, fence between each other. And so... It was great. It was like social hour as well as, as well as training. So that was awesome. Yeah. I remember a lot of girls dropping out of sports because they were embarrassed that people would watch them. But my experience was different where I was like, boys actually like you better if you play sports. Yeah. (laughs) That was always my experience. I don't know. I I feel like the opposite was actually true to what, what they, they thought. Yeah. I secretly always wanted to be a dancer or a cheerleader, but I was not allowed to dance for, you know, my parents didn't want us to do dance because it could lead to other things. So we weren't allowed to do dance. I was like, what's it going to lead to success? (laughs) It was super funny. Um, So I always wanted to secretly be a cheerleader, but because I couldn't, I was like, Mm -hmm. fine, then I'll just play the sports. So I just ended up playing the sports and I'm super happy with the choices that were made. So it's all good. I would be a, would have been a terrible cheerleader. I have a loud voice, but zero coordination on the dance floor. So (laughs) (laughs) So what was the turning point for you then? When when did you start to think, hey, Olympics would be super cool? And, you know, when did you start to think, oh, like, the Olympics are not cool, not just cool, but I could actually go to the Olympics? What was the turning um, point for you? Well, I first started thinking that maybe fencing could be, could be something that I could could do relatively well when I went to the Canada Winter Games. And without really focusing too hard on it, I just finished fourth without even really thinking about it. And I was like, wow, that was so close to a medal. And I'm thinking, 
if I had actually put my mind to it, maybe I could have had a medal. And, and I had never been super talented at anything. I was the youngest of five kids, always like the least good at everything. And so when I saw that I could be kind of good at something like this, I was like, oh yeah, I'm going all in then. And um, and then after that, I made the national team for like cadet national team under 17. And then I thought, if I just keep working at this, I think I can keep making teams. And I never really thought about the Olympics. Like the Olympics, we just always watched shelling peas, you know, in front of the TV in the in those two weeks in the summertime. Like I was not a big Olympic aficionado by any means. And, um, and so I never really, you never really was in, you know, on my radar. And then all of a sudden they said, okay, well, the Olympics are now, the fencing is now in the Olympics. And we had a girl from Poland, Renata Grodeska on our team. And she was so convinced that Team Canada could make it. She's like, listen, we just have to be ahead of the U.S. and our team can qualify for, for no, no, not the U.S. because the U.S. was already qualified. She's like, we just have to be ahead of all the other teams in the Americas and we can qualify for the Olympics in, in 96 in, in uh, Atlanta. And I was on the national team thinking, is she crazy? We would never qualify. Like, well, who do we think we are? And I think that was a big, a big difference is that she had come from the European, um, the European uh, world of fencing where you had just a higher expectation of success right from the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. You weren't thinking, oh, what, what does a Canadian know about fencing? She was just like, why not? That was her attitude was why not? And we didn't end up qualifying, but there was a couple of people who were pretty close. And that was the first time I had a memory of thinking, huh, well, why not? So that was, that was the, probably the turning point when I thought, okay, maybe, maybe this could be something to go for. So, so then you end up going to four Olympics, <laughs> <laughs> having no initial yeah. dreams of I going tried, at all. <laughs> I tried to make the cheerleading team and they just wouldn't take 25 year olds on the, like, <laughs> on the junior crew. It was like such a disappointment. <laughs> If you go to the top of the pyramid, you'll collapse everybody. <laughs> Injuries everywhere. They're like, with those shoulders, <laughs> you need to be on the bottom row. <laughs> <laughs> and so Sydney 2000 then was your first Olympics. Yes. And it was actually only the second time the Women's Epi event was held at the modern Olympic Games. The first, like you said, yep. being in Atlanta in 96. Mm -hmm. So at this point, you're like, okay, this is kind of cool. I'm kind of inspired. Um, so as you start to, to like train for the Olympics, did you have any mentors or, or idols? Was there anyone in the sport that you like looked to for inspiration when you were one of the earlier competitors in the field? Well, I was always super, super obsessed with a German epe fencer named Arn Schmidt, not just because he was gorgeous, but because um, we had watched his videos back in the days of watching VCR videos. My fencing coach had had us watch him beat Alexander Pusch, his teammate, in the 88 Olympics in Korea when they when he won. He was like 19, I think, when he won. He was super young. And, um, and we watched that video so many times during fencing practice that I was a little bit obsessed with him. And, um, and so I, my fencing is nothing like his, I don't pattern my fencing after him, but I just remember he was one of, for sure, one of my heroes because he was always super nice too. I'd see him in the gyms and he, gym and he'd always give a big smile and he always had time for everybody, everybody. So he was a cool guy in terms of the female side, like any, any female mentors, Laura Flessel was obviously like winning everything ridiculously easily. She and I were super different fencers as well. She really was, um, like very threatening with her, with her, um, her speed. And I was 
very much the opposite of that. So <laughs> I was like, I was more threatening with my, I'm going to get away now powers. <laughs> so I was pretty good on defense and she was pretty good on offense, but I super admired her ability to just get the job done. She psyched herself up. She went out there. She treated it really like very professionally. And she tried as hard in the first round as she did in the, in the gold medal. And I remember watching oh, that wow. thinking, wow, she never lets up. She was just like, every point to her was like, yes, I am a champion. And I remember watching her thinking, she's incredible. So, and she's always been like a, a, like a, a huge influence on, on female sports. I think she was the, the own, one of the only ones that's really done it professionally where she made, had like big sponsors and made good money and really like, you know, before the age of social media was already everywhere in the media and really, you know, marketing herself very well. And she's just also a very lovely person. So she was a big influence. So as you became more and more elite, you moved to Europe to train for fencing. Why was that such an important move for you to, to achieve your goals? Um, I had, um, I had a coach, Manuel Guité, in who was a member of France's national team, or at least their national squad for a couple of years. He had moved to Ottawa and was training people from the Ottawa, from University of Ottawa when I went there. And so he was coaching me, giving me tons of lessons, giving me an amazing technique, like a base of technique. I learned almost everything I ever learned about the technique of fencing from him because he knew he would give lessons with two hands. Like, so you do right-handed, left-handed. And I really learned not to care if the person was right-handed or left-handed. Mm -hmm. He taught me all the positions, like, like all the like fencing positions, like um, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and like how to position your hand properly and how to, you know, he was a wonderful, wonderful technician. And he just said, listen, you are not getting the same level of, of sparring that you need, the same level of, um, you know, competition between, between teammates. And he said, you should probably go for a couple months in France. And he said, I can arrange with my old training buddy, Jean-Michel, if you want to go live in, in Bordeaux at the junior training center there. And I said, yeah, okay, why not? So I went there and it was tough, but it was like an eye-opening experience. And, um, and it was good. And then after that, I think I won my first World Cup after I trained there, not because of that necessarily, but I remember at one competition I came home and I was like, Oh, I was in the top eight at a world cup. And one of the girls in the club was in the training center was like, so, and I was like, Oh, okay. You know, like it was like, like when I say what we think of as a good performance, at least back then, yeah. I know times have changed now in Canada and it's much more professional than it was back then. But back in those days, it was like, I made the top eight. I'm the greatest in the whole world. And you're like, no, actually you're just eight. <laughs> So they had a much more, they had just a different perspective, you know, more realistic. And so I started to adopt that attitude of like, yeah, that's not good enough. And then I think that really helped. Yeah. And I, I think that's still an issue, at least in fencing. I'm, I would assume with other elite sports too, where you said you, you don't have, or you didn't have the sparring partners up the, the level that you needed to, to train to get, to be, to crack the top four. Top two? Yeah. Gold medal? Part, part um, of the issue is, I think, and this, I'm, I don't want to complain because I know there are logistical problems in Canada that cannot be, cannot be surmounted with anything other than private airplanes for everyone or, you know, some sort of, you know, cost prohibitive thing. But there has to be some sort of a system in place where once a qualified athlete qualifies, they are guaranteed training partners. You know, because I remember before mm -hmm. the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, I was paying my teammates at the University of Ottawa 
beer and pizza to come and spar with me. And I was preparing for the Olympics. And I'm like, why is this not being taken care of? I didn't think that at the time. I just said, oh, thanks guys for coming. You know, I'll pay for the the pizzas later. And they were super nice to do it. But I'm like, they were taking time out of their summer. So they were not exactly trained, right? And here in, in Italy, if you are on the national team and you qualify, there is the whole B national team. There's a junior national team. There's a cadet national team. They're all obliged to come to the training camps for the last month prior to the Olympics and just train with the team who's going so that that team has super high level um, training partners that are not going to be their competition at the games. Right. Right. So yeah. it's super important to have a structure in place. And I, I only had that when my coaches were extremely organized and able to, to, you know, amass the resources. Like we had Daniel Levasseur who, who, who made us have training camps with other teams before. He was really good about that. And my, my coach Gabor was really good about that. Gabor Shalomon from, from Hungary. He was very organized administratively. But otherwise, it was always kind of like up in the air. And I knew that everybody stops fencing before the Olympics, right? Everybody who's not on the team. And three out of the four Olympics, I was alone. So I'm like, who am I going to train with? You know, it was a bit, it was mm-hmm. a bit sketchy. And I thought, I thought, you know, it would be nice to be, um, because at the Olympics, Canada's really good about providing everything that you need once you're there. There's like, if you want, you know, Cheerios, a bowl of Cheerios, just go down to the, the Athletes Village Center where the Canadians will have a bowl of Cheerios waiting for you, all the massages you want. And I'm thinking, I just wanted a little bit of support for my training before I got here. You know, that was the one thing that I would have liked and that I totally had when I, when I had, when we were all together as a team, we super pushed each other because we knew that it was for everybody's common good. And that was amazing. So that's why that was the best Olympics quote unquote, in terms of experience, you know, not just results, but experience. Yeah. And that's one, you know, if we circle back to my question about having, um, (laughs) You have I to guess circle me back to the original question. What? I, got, I went off no, on I a tangent? Circle, what is I gotta circle, <laughs> No, I got to circle back to a question I had before. Please. Before. Go back. That was the question I had about the idols. Like, who did you you have um, to look up to? And um, I guess part of what I'm trying to do, you know, with the podcast is like mm-hmm. try to can convince women who aren't sure to like get back into sports because we don't. We don't see, you know, when people, when people grow up, they go to university and they they get jobs and they move around. We don't have a lot of people still in the sport, um, to, to help train the the young people coming up. Um, and I don't know if it's different for men than it is for women. Um, or maybe it's just Epi. And I, I think our current Epi team, most of them train in France. I don't think that's true for foil and saber, but it's, and I remember at one point I was like, you know, like it would be great if they would come back and like help the rest of us develop. But then I went sure. to a satellite world cup and I was like, now I know why they don't. <laughs> Cause right. the level is like, like, you know what I mean? It's like, it would be great if they came in and helped develop, but at the same time, there's not enough here to develop them. So when you go to those competitions, are they going to be behind? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I I can see Absolutely. where we don't have the participation. We don't miss, maybe have the grass level support. Um, yeah, you know, funding or or whatever it is. And you need super good administrative organization. Like, I think Paul Simon in Women's Foil is doing a, an amazing job at just getting stuff together. Like, they're supported. 
they get sponsors, they have, you know, nobody's getting rich, but everybody, is, nobody is going bankrupt either, you know, to compete for that team. Mm-hmm. And they are, and they're not relying on just government money either. You know, he's super proactive and he organizes camps. He structures their trainings. Not that I know nobody's perfect, no athlete or coach, but yeah. when I see the job that he's doing, I'm like, that's what needs to be done on a national level in all sports. But unless you can find someone like that for all the other, all the other weapons, then it's going to be hard to, to manage. I can't, I don't know exactly what's going on because I've been kind of out of the loop in, in Canadian fencing. I just know because I'm friends with Paul and I see what he's doing on, I follow him on Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that. So I see what they're doing. And every time I see their projects or how he promotes it, I think that's very professional looking. That looks like a European style of coaching, but done in a Canadian way, which is even more challenging because logistics. So yeah, and I definitely don't think it's limited to to fencing. Um, recently, right. there was a, a story about um, a Russian tennis player, like on the pro circuit, and she was charged with um, betting. She's basically betting against herself. And apparently, in tennis, which I didn't, I would have never known. I mean, betting is so rampant, and you can actually bet down to the individual point. <laughs> That's so she she did like two double faults. She got caught, I think, because she did two double faults in a row, which is like really rare for that level. Okay, but then they and they, I think, she ended up being released, and they were looking for bigger fish. But the point is, is she had to do that because unless you're like Serena Williams or Naomi Osaka, you don't make enough money to pay for your training. <laughs> oh. And I would, you know, wonder if it's actually even more expensive for women just because there are fewer people in the sport. So you would have to travel more and like pay more to, to get to these camps, to get to these coaches who to get sparring partners at your level. So you can, you can improve, right? Because there are just, there are just fewer. In are you talking in fencing or in, I think just in general, I think just in, in general, in, in any elite sport, I'm, I would be curious to know, if it ends up costing more money for women to, to become elite, like at, at, you know, the highest level, just because there are fewer women participating. So you don't have the same volume of people to be sparring against and the travel would, would have to be more, I think. Yeah, that's one side of it. And then the other thing that might come into play, I'm not sure, I have no idea about the actual, you know, facts and statistics about it, but my, my feeling is that, um, a, Something somebody who hears that could say, yeah, okay, there's fewer people, so there's fewer sparring partners, but then it takes less to get to the top, right? Like I remember I heard that sometimes when mm-hmm. when I was competing, and some of the men's FBS, I've heard them say, you know, oh, you're so lucky, you just get to, you know, there's only 85 people in your event, so you're already qualified for the second day right away. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I've been in the top like 16 in the world for like a decade now. Like, keep your shirt on. But it's, um, I was like, it's not, yeah, it's true that there are fewer people, so it might be easier to get to the top. But I think those few people who do it are heavily invested. And so I feel like the level might be, might be just as good in the top half for the women as it is for the men. You know, the bottom half, I'm not sure about, mm-hmm. but I know it was just as competitive in the top half as it was the t- men's and women's were just as competitive respectively, you know, like anybody in the top half of the women's match could win women's event and anybody in the top half of the men's could win realistically right yeah so even though there are fewer people i'm just thinking of like the counterpoint to your argument you know mm-hmm. like oh it's more expensive because there's fewer people and i'm like yeah well then it's easier to be number one so stop complaining 
but I'm not sure. Uh, it's very hard to to guess about that stuff. And I, yeah, 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 for sure. But I, I do recall, and I, you know, as I was going through the system, um, the difference between like a C rank and a B rank feels mm-hmm. like a massive chasm. <laughs> and then what? the difference between B to an A is like another chasm. Like it's in, in to, to get to that level would require an insane amount of, of travel and training in probably in, uh. well, for fencing anyway, at least in Europe to be able to train against that many more, um, different styles, different people, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? To, yeah. to, and it would take just to get, to get to that level, I think would be really. You know, one thing I always thought was if, you know, in Canada, because I remember in Canada in the last few years, it, it was, you had, well, we had to pay like some, I don't know if it's still working this way. Um, we had to pay a huge sum of money to be in the elite program, like $500 per year or yeah. something like this. It was some a massive amount of money just to be able to do like elite competitions, yep. right? Five fifty. And I was thinking if you want people to come back and keep the sport alive, you could do something like what they do here, where here you don't have to have like you have to have a certain level of equipment, but it doesn't have to be like international level equipment. You just have to have a reasonable, like um, a reasonably safe. That's already been, you know, it's like, it's a European community stamp on it. So it means it's safe. Like it's been checked by, you know, by the nanny state. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're going to be safe. Right. But it's not all like massive Kevlar or whatever it is and not Kevlar, whatever they use now. And um, so it's already less expensive and all you have to do is belong to a club and, then from that you can just so it keeps the clubs alive. So you pay money to the club, yep. and it's not five hundred and fifty euros. It's a smaller amount that you can, and then you can just go and do the competitions. I'm like, if they wanted to keep, like, say, I move back to Canada and I want to just go and fence, you know, or go and do a training camp, I would have to pay an insane amount of money just to get into the system. And I'm like, eh, I invested a lot of money before that. I'm not sure I want to do that now, you know. So I feel like they're losing a big. They're not retaining the, um, the they're not retaining like the circle of sport that they could, you know, they could have like a bigger life cycle of the athletes where when they get older, then they support the younger ones. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, that seems kind of like a shame. I know they probably do it for some reason. They probably need the money. So I get it. Not saying that they're like, you know, just pocketing the money. I'm sure they're using it for valid things, but it just seems like that's a missed opportunity for, you know, keeping other people in the sport that could really help the youngsters, you know? I can't believe I just said youngsters. Oh, that's I cute. I reached, peak, <laughs> right. I reached peak middle age. Aww. <laughs> yeah, well, I always... Gotta go tell people to get off my lawn. <laughs> yeah. Get off the lawn! I just watered it! I know. Every time I see someone, I'm like, you're 22 and you're old enough to be my child by choice. I'm thinking, damn, I'm old. That's, that's my <laughs> metric. It's <laughs> funny. I remember giving a speech to a, a high school and saying... I've been fencing longer than any of you have been alive. And I was like, wow, that's impressive. <laughs> I remember the first day that happened. It was pretty funny. So what was your first Olympic experience? Okay. Just, I'm so sorry to cut back to this, but as you were talking about women in sport and that whole issue, um, before we jump to another, another subject, because I think that's super important about how maybe the women have to pay more to, you know, reach that level. 
like invest more in terms of you know fi- their finances. I was thinking because um, because my husband was recently complaining to me um, because he's been doing a course on sustainability, and part of it is you know sustainability mm-hmm. not just of the environment but of like you know equality between the the between genders in in you know the working world. And he said it is so ridiculously unfair that the WNBA player, the highest paid, I think it's two hundred and sixty thousand dollars per year, and the the lowest paid NBA player is like a million dollars per year or something. Yeah, it's crazy. And he said the imbalance is insane. And I said I made the I'm always like devil's advocate argument because I don't want to be accused of being like you know like uh, oh you're just you just you know using statistics to push your agenda. So I said, okay, well, they do draw more fans. And he said, sure. But how else are you going to get fans unless you pay these people properly and they can, you know, dedicate their lives to playing the sport? And I said, yeah, that's a good point. And I know tennis has done a great job of having equal pay. Mm -hmm. Prize money is identical. And I remember one competition in Doha in one of my last years of fencing in Qatar, of course. They were both Grand Prix for men and women. Yep. And we finished third by team. And... First by team was the Italian team and in men's and women's. I believe this is how it went. And the, one of the girls, Christiana Cascioli, was complaining to me. She said, oh, it's so unfair. She said my husband or her boyfriend at the time was making more, um, was getting more prize money. And I said, yeah, but it's, you know, it's a Grand Prix for them too. Or it's a Grand Prix for them and not for us. And she goes, Shane, it's a Grand Prix for both of us, which means it's the highest level of competition. Yep. Right. Yep. She said, it's technically exactly the same level of competition. And she looked around like the, the totally unpopulated stands. And she goes, and don't tell me that the men get more people here watching them than the women do. Nobody is watching it. And I was like, yeah, that's <laughs> a really good point. So it was flat out gender discrimination. That's all it was. Yeah. And I'm like, of course, not surprised because it's from it's from an old school sport like fencing and it's from a country like Qatar. So I'm like, okay, but I would expect more from other places that are more, you know, that preach better values like America and stuff like that. You know, you would expect better, better equality in terms of at least some sort of like a taxation on, on the men's team to, or if you sponsor them, then you also have to sponsor like 25% of your budget also has to go to sponsor the women's. Like there's some ways to, you know, yeah. any, any correction is always an overcorrection at the beginning. And then after that, it becomes fair. I agree. So we yeah. just have to accept the overcorrection at the beginning, try to make it fair. And then, uh, and then, you know, and then the world will be a better place. Kumbaya, <laughs> <my> love. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. You know, the thing is, is that you could pay those NBA players far less money. They're still very well paid for what they do. Like, come on. Sure. And, yeah. and, and fund the WNBA and you'd still be rolling in money. Like it's, you know, um, I yeah, think, I absolutely. think in Europe now, I think the premier leagues are starting to, the clubs are starting to sponsor the women's soccer team. So they've actually have like a premier league right. and DAZN mm-hmm. is now going to have all of the women's Euro or sorry, the champions league games for the next four years. They've, do have TV spots now. And it's funny because I'm watching Euro. I always, I love the Euro and World Cups, men's and women's. And, uh, but I've, I've got like, you know. Who are you supporting in the final? Italy or, or, or England? Well, I do not want England to go through. I'm hoping it's going to be Italy, Denmark. And then I'm just hoping for a good game, Shireen. 
Oh, okay. I'm just hoping for a good game. All right. I have no ties. Right. I have no ties. The Scots, the Scottish teams are gone. That Robertson guy didn't cause a fight. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, so the, I think they're putting in there. But it's funny because I, you know, a lot of men that I talk to, they they like watching women's soccer, and some of them even say they like it better because the sure. women are are far less dramatic. <laughs> They're like, there's so much less diving, Karen. And I'm like, yeah, because we, we'd get laughed off the pitch if we pulled the stunts that the men did. Could you imagine? Absolutely. It'd be like, there's another hysterical woman crying over a broken leg. <laughs> right? Yeah, I know. I know that it's uh, the, the mantra that we always have with um, speaking to our daughters about this stuff because they see it and they hear us talking and I do not want them to grow up thinking that it's just unfair. So we always say the best time to be alive for any gender and any race is now. It is. I agree because with that. everything is better than it was before, mm-hmm. but it is definitely not good enough. And that's all we always say. We're like, there's always room for massive improvement. And so we don't stop improving. But we also don't, you know, don't kick progress in the face and say, this is the worst ever. You know, I'm like, no, if I, you know, that question, like, when would you go back and be what in what era would you live if you could go back in time? I'm always like, as a woman, maybe a couple of Native American cultures, that's it, where they actually had some say in what went on, you know, and I'm like, otherwise, I would not want to be a woman in probably any timeline in the whole world. If I was a man, sure, I'd go back to be a musketeer in France or something like this. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> if they didn't have toothbrushes or oral hygiene, I'm yeah. not going back in time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So what was your first Olympic experience like? What were the successes and what were the lessons that you took with you going into your next Olympics, like to Athens and Beijing and London? Uh, the first Olympic experience was at the same time, super exciting because Australia did a fabulous job. They did like, it's a, it's a very sporty culture. And so they were totally into it. And it's also a laid back culture. So there wasn't like high stress or high pressure, you know, in in, like just getting around town or whatever, you know, people were like, all right, everybody was just, it seemed like everyone was in a pretty good mood. And my event was not very good. I lost to a girl that was like, my nightmare she was like super aggressive on the blade and not mm. really you know a fighter to the end and she ended up beating me and um and the lesson that I take now from it was that I probably should have learned how to defend myself against that or how to out aggress her because that would have paid off dividends in my future you know I took it as okay I need to work on some things instead of saying I need to completely rethink how to how to, when, I, when I'm confronted with someone who fences like this, because most of the people that I lost to in my career fenced like her. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they were super aggressive counter timers, like the, you know, the d- double taking of the blade in two different directions. <clears throat> and, and I could do, I, I was pretty good at disengaging and moving back and everything, but if they got close enough, then they could just crush my blade and just hit me. And I don't think I learned enough lessons technically from that, you know, but Anyways, but, and then after that, I, it was on the second day of the, of the Olympics. And so then the rest of it, that was back in the day when you could just stay in the village and just like go and see all the events. So I had a great time watching the other sports and seeing the other athletes and, 
And I remember we didn't go to the opening ceremonies. So we just walked around the village as Canadians doing our own flag bearing, you know, like yeah. we had walked around and did our little athlete's entrance. Cheerleading. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, my cheerleading. That's right. I got my chance after all. At the Olympics. Thank you very much. <laughs> Who says I'm a failure, mom? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Success is where you find it, Karen. Um, and then, and then there was there was also a really nice moment. I went to see tennis, and it was Canadians. The two Canadians they were playing for the gold medal against uh, it was Sebastian Moo, someone or other, and Daniel, someone or other. They were like super super good tennis players that I don't remember their last names. And we went to see them play in the gold medal, and they were playing against Australia. And even though Australia was down in the oh Daniel in Nestor the, in the break in between the matches. Daniel Nestor and Sebastian. I don't know, but Daniel Nestor has been around for like 40 years. Guys, amazing. Yes. The shyest person I've ever seen in my life. Really? He was so like lovely and elegant and shy, just like walking into the, you know, yeah, yeah. He was like, uh, you would never expect that he was like a, you know, a high level killer on the court. Um, and so we were watching them play and they were, they were winning and all the Australian fans in the middle of the break just started singing to sort of pump up their team, but also just to create some wonderful ambiance. They started singing Waltzing Matilda. So the whole, <laughs> the whole stadium was singing Waltzing Matilda, Waltzing Matilda. <laughs> and I was sitting there thinking, this is beautiful. And I just recently heard at the Tokyo Olympics, the rules for the spectators are you cannot cheer and you cannot sing. <sighs> and I remember thinking, Oh, well, nobody will have that Walton Matilda experience. <laughs> That's one in my memory bank. <laughs> That's crazy. So that was a that was a nice experience. It was just lovely. Um and it was it was a nice little it was a nice little introduction to the Olympics because it was just very well done and a lot of fun. And it was in Australia, which is beautiful. And it was in Australia. Yeah. So your second Olympics. That was great. In Athens. But different experience was by team, which was totally different and way better. The Olympics themselves were a bit like, you know, chaotic, whatever it's Athens. Like there was wet cement. Cement was still drying in our, in our athletes village, like in the, and the bathroom was like barely, the toilet was barely stuck into the wall. It was a disaster in terms of, you know, what the village was like. It was just really behind schedule and horrible. Um, but the the rest of it was fine. It was, you know, and, and having the team there was amazing, I have to say. I I realized then what a difference it is because I played a lot of team sports, you know, um, basketball, volleyball, all this stuff mm-hmm. growing up. And I always loved it, but I always felt um, an immense pressure in fencing. That's why I like to do just individually because people, you know, people, I talk to a lot of parents here now I'm coaching here and parents are like, Oh, I want my child to do team sports. You know, it's very important to learn how to play as a team and it's good that they like, you know, they learn to support each other. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. You definitely need to put your kid in some team sports, but it's possible that your child, people always assume that an individual sport means you're an egotistical individualistic person, which can be true. And it can also mean that you are the type of person that feels an immense pressure from having other people's expectations on Mm -hmm. you. And that's what fencing freed up for me. I was like, I'm only responsible for myself. So if I don't perform, then that's just my loss and I had a bad day. But if I don't perform and other people are depending on me, then I was like kind of overwhelmed by the responsibility of that. 
And uh, so this was a great experience because our team was so unified. We had our coach, Daniel Levavasar, was he was very tough. And, um, and we had that whole like band together because we're so angry at the coach many times <laughs> in the course of our training. And so our team was very unified. Let's say we were like, <laughs> and that helped a lot. And it made me, it, I didn't feel the pressure of if I screw up, then the team is going to blame me because I felt like, you know what, we're all in mm-hmm. this together. So that was a really, it was a really beautiful moment. And even though we didn't get as far as we wanted and I'm, mostly responsible for that at the end um you know everybody can do a little bit better i'm not the only one responsible for us not getting to the gold medal but it was uh but it it was just it was just a really wonderful experience i saw how i saw how different people's approach can really if done in a if you take it with if, if you take what they're doing in good faith they can have a completely different approach to you and you can have success together. And I think that was the big secret with having a good team is, is assuming someone else's good faith. So when someone is like quiet before, you don't have to be like, why are you quiet? Are you scared? Are you angry? What's the matter? You're just like, okay, they're doing what they need to do. You're like, are you okay? And they're like, yeah, yeah. Then you just take it in good faith that they're telling you the truth or that they just need some time alone or something like that. Or So it was very useful to, it was like a good study in, human psychology and team performance. Yeah. And teams also help you get out of your head a little bit. Like you have, you have to put trust in your teammates and yeah. And fencing the anchor, it looks like it comes down on you at the end. It's like, it's like the goalie in a penalty shot in soccer. Right. But what are the events that led up to that point now? So, you know, I mean, if your team did the best they could do and they gave you like a 10 point lead and you lost it and you were at like 40 points and it goes to 45, you might be a little bit. Ups- <gasps> How did you know that's what happened? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm joking. <laughs> then maybe, you know, you could put some of the fault on yourself, but at the same, but you know, you have sure. to, I think it takes away credit from your teammates from the work they do to get to a certain point. If you all only put it on yourself like you know, if you're at a if you're if you're Good a goalie point. and you're like yeah. taking a penalty shot, you know, and you're you know, and you you don't it it goes in, you miss it. But it was your defense and your midfielders and your offense who who got to the point where they gave this guy a penalty shot. Like it's it's not all on you. Like maybe you could have saved it, but sure, I who put you in the position that you yeah. had to make that in the yeah. first place? So it's everybody, and I think you can. Yeah, you know, that is part of the team. You're right. That's, yeah. Yeah. And I remember in the one event that I'm thinking of, the one where we were fencing against Russia to go to see who would go to the gold medal and who would go to the bronze medal match. And um, the goal was to be at even Mm -hmm. before my last match, because I was fencing against this girl named Tatiana Luganova. And I almost always beat her. She would like lose her mind when she fenced with me, like, and all of a sudden just like give up. And uh, like, as soon as I, if I was just a little bit more mentally tough than she, then she would just be like, you know, and so I was pretty confident going into it, but not overly confident, obviously, because it's the Olympics and it's me we're talking about. So, um, so Monique finished her second to last match and she fenced amazingly. Everybody did, Julie, Monique, everyone. And, um, and she said, I've done my job, pass the baton to you, right? And so I took it and then we, you know, the proverbial baton, mm-hmm. obviously, we were fencing with epics, <laughs> not batons. <laughs> That's the majorettes who fence with batons. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, um, so we... <laughs> 
So I started fencing and I remember how I said about Sydney Olympics, how I wish I had learned in like a crunch moment, how to just do a really solid attack without having to provoke a mistake from Mm -hmm. someone else. That was what I I had meant by I didn't learn my, my lesson enough because I think had I, had I enforced myself to learn this is what you're going to do to do an attack and you're going to set it up and you're going to do it because most of my fencing had been based off pushing mistakes from other people. Sure. And at something like the Olympics, um, people don't make as many mistakes as you would like them to. Yes. So, okay. so, um, so in that, in that match, I pushed her, I pushed her, I pushed her and she just didn't make a mistake. She was really, really good. She was fast and balanced and like better than I've ever seen her fence. And, um, and there was a, like a little bit of a sketchy call, and it went in her favor, and then she went ahead. And then after that, I just wasn't able to recover. And that's what I was talking about, how I felt responsible that we didn't mm. go to the gold medal. So it is true that it, I could have done better because I could have set myself up in a better way. I could have prepared better. But, you know, these are all things. Live and learn. No one is uh, – And she yes. is an exceptional fencer. I mean, good gosh. Oh, sure. She's, she's great. Forever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no no discredit to her, but but that was what I mean, like – it would have been it would have been nicer if I had done my job just a bit better in that last match. I did my job in other matches, so I'm not like you know mm-hmm. negating my performance, but that was that one was on me. So, oh well, gotta take your lumps. <laughs> it's it's still amazing. It's still yeah. At some point, um, though, between Sydney and Athens, you started writing a book. Which I read, oh, yes. by the way. And I also got married for the first time. Married and that for was the first the, time. The, my first husband featured largely in the book because we were together at that time. So what prompted you in the middle of training between two Olympics <laughs> to write, to be like, I, you know, I'm a full-time athlete. I've got not a lot going on over here. <laughs> I'm going to write a well, book. Well, I was really, I was really good <laughs> friends with Stephen King. And he said, listen, I'll ghostwrite your book. You just put your name on it. You'll get the credit. <laughs> And I'll ghostwrite it for you. And I was like, Stephen, come on, man. Don't you have like another 30 novels to write this year? And he's like, I can take a break. So we got together in Maine and we just had like a powwow. No, I'm kidding. Okay. That would so be amazing though, right? What happened was, oh my God, yes. There would have been a lot more death in your Running With Swords book, I think. Yeah. It would have been like this creepy spirit emanating from my sword every time I go against my opponents. Isn't Stephen King his ghost name? Isn't his real name like Richard or Robert Bachman or something? I I, think, I don't think so. I think so. I think he has uh, another it? name. Yeah. Anyway. Are you sure? Because I don't remember that. I read his, his on writing autobiography, sort of like how to write properly. And I don't remember ever hearing about that. Oh. Let's make a bet. Okay. And the loser the next time we see each other has to buy whatever they're serving at the cafeteria in whatever, comp- in whatever competition we are. Whatever you- the other person wants to drink. Done. Let's Even make- the extra large Gatorade that costs four ninety nine. Oh no! Okay, let's do it. <laughs> May- I'm taking this bet right now. Great! I love making small time bets like that. It's so much fun. <laughs> um, okay, so so what prompted me to write a book? My brother in law Peter is in the media business, and I was writing these emails back to my family, like funny emails, just saying, "Oh my, you know, never guess what happened. Uh, I was fencing and." Um, I walked into the wrong gym or I went into the shower and it turned out that it was the boys bathroom and I had to wait in the shower for a full 15 minutes until everybody cleared out. 
and people were knocking on the door and thinking someone was in there and it was very embarrassing that actually legitimately happened two years ago so let's just that wasn't part of the, the story I was writing but that type of thing right like stupid things that people most people wouldn't notice but can make a good little story mm-hmm to let my family know that I was okay and what life was like. And then my brother-in-law who was in media was like, you should send these to the newspaper. Maybe they would print them. And I was like, all right. And so I sent them and they were like, sure, we'll give you a little bit of money. We'll print them. And I was like, oh, great. Oh, cool. And then one day I got an email from, from, uh, from the publishing company and Fitzhenry and Whiteside. And they were like, they sent this email saying, we would like to publish your, your emails into a, your missives into a book. And I said, haha, very funny. And they said, haha, we're not kidding. <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> how does this work? And they said, well, we offer you a little, like, you know, a little, um, a little payment first. And then, uh, and then that's how it works. Then you write us a book. And I was like, okay, deal. So I just sat down and write, wrote it. And it was great fun because it was a way to be creative. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that I really like about fencing is that it allows you to be creative. I never really understand or watch race sports because I find that they lack creativity, that it like visceral creativity. I can't see mm-hmm. the creativity going on. In a game sport, I can see how they're moving or creating yeah. a play. I can't see that in race sports because I'm just not educated enough. And I'm my husband insists that they're there because mm-hmm. he's a swimmer and he's like, oh no, you gotta imagine, you gotta see this. And somehow he makes me enjoy watching it, but I don't understand it as well. So yeah, you probably feel the same way because you're also a fencer. Right? Yeah, yeah. So the creativity was able to get, you know, get out of me also in sitting down and writing, which was great because I was doing a lot of training. And so I couldn't have done something that wasn't just like sitting down. So I was forced to sit down for like an hour, two hours per day and just, just write up, you know, write, edit, write, edit. That was it. And I have to say the most boring part that I had to write was not that you asked, <laughs> was the technical side of fencing. The guy who, who edited my book was like, you have written nothing technical about fencing. People don't know how the sport works. And I'm like, oh, I hate that writing about the technique. And he was like, he said, you really must. And I said, fine. So it is the least inspired part. The most inspired is the stories about the people and the psychology yeah. and you know, the funny little moments. Those are the things that I really, that I really enjoy. It's funny that he would he would say that because I would think that people would care the least about the technical parts of fencing. Yeah, I'm thinking anyone who's <laughs> going to read a book written by a fencer is probably going to know fencing. <laughs> so was this like a cool kind of one-off project or was this something you thought that you could get into um, like while or after you were done fencing? No, I, I've written some other things, you know, some articles and whatnot, but nothing of great importance. I haven't written another book since then. I would love to, and I, I do love writing, you know, but mostly just short articles or one-offs or something like that. Nothing, nothing too big. All right. So your next Olympics is Beijing in 2008 and you finished yep. ninth, which was your best yep. uh, individual Olympic finish. And you're prepping for London yep, that, 2012. Was... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that was, I was in the best shape of my life there <laughs> in 2008. That was like, I was like, in top notch condition. I had, you know, I wasn't in the best mental condition, but physically I remember I had my coach was Gabor Shalomon. He's a genius when it comes to physical preparation. Like I was strong and fast and I was like, I don't even remember being tired ever. Like he was so, you know, those coaches that can make you, that can push you without you're like, you're like, I'm dying. You know, it was like little by little by little. And then at the end of it, you're like, 
who am I? I'm an Adonis. <laughs> so that was a nice part of that Olympics. <laughs> and then you found out you're pregnant. Yes, we were trying to have a baby. So yes, I did find out I was pregnant quite happily. Well, that's good. In spite of the first time, the first pregnancy test I took was negative. And I was so sad that my husband, <laughs> my husband, when my back was turned, took a little pen and made it into a positive sign Aww. on the stick. And he's like, look at it again. And I was like, <laughs> that's a shaky ballpoint pen. <laughs> he's like, I just want you to be happy. Aww. <laughs> it was very cute. <laughs> so obviously, you're pregnant, getting stabbed by a sword, sharper otherwise is not great. Um, yes, but- I stopped fencing, but I kept taking lessons until... Well, like two weeks before, like there's a picture of me with a giant belly, like taking a little lesson, not doing crazy things like hardcore lunges. And I was super careful about my, um, I was super careful about my weight, not in a paranoia way, but I just stopped eating sugar. And to this Mm. day, my daughter is like not obsessed. She's just like, whatever. Um, she, and, and so I was like all, you know, crazy healthy and I remember taking, I put like a ball, like a tennis ball hanging from the roof. And I was like poking it and stuff, doing like the standard things to try to keep active because I thought, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to have to be right back in training because I was giving birth in 2011 and the Olympics were in 2012. So it was pretty, pretty quick. I had to be back in shape. Yeah. So what were some of the training challenges that you, you faced though? Like physically what, what changed besides the, the giant, um, belly bump? giant belly (laughs) um did you notice anything like were there any other challenges to to training while pregnant like physically anything that changed for you that you didn't expect maybe I remember feeling um pregnant not so much I really loved being pregnant I'm I was pretty okay at it you know I didn't have any like issues both times with both girls and I don't remember suffering from anything. I wasn't doing all that much training, I have to say. Like I was doing like little hand things, like mm-hmm. you know, like poking the tennis ball and walking a lot, but I was not I was not doing anything crazy. Like I heard there's this there's an Olympic athlete who is going and competing while she's 18 weeks pregnant, I think. And she's going to be competing in, in Tokyo and it's, oh uh, it's remarkable and incredible and I'm super happy. Go for it. But it, I was, I wasn't really in that headspace. I was already of a certain age where I thought, and my idea was I would have the baby and because I was living in Europe without, you know, any sort of like support system mm-hmm. besides my husband, obviously, but he was working like a crazy person and my, and my like doing, being an amazing father, like he changed every diaper known to baby. He was like, he was like, you're doing all, you're doing all the feeding. He was like, I have to be responsible for something. I will change all the diapers. And I'm like, okay, best husband ever. Yeah. He was like, you can make her sleep with the milk. He goes, I have to be able to do something. I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> so, um, so he was really great about that, but I didn't have like, obviously he had to work. So I didn't have any support during the day. So I thought I'm going to have to take her to training with me. And I just hope it will work out. If she's a good enough baby and I can manage to train mm-hmm. while having a baby there with me, then great. I'll keep going to London 2012. And if not, then I've had a great career and, you know, I'll just do something else. I'll be a mom for a while and then start up something else after. And it turns out she was like a dream baby for being in the in the gym. I like, would like, I'd go with to training, push her in the little 
Pasadena or the little stroller. In Budapest, we would take the metro. I'd have her in like the, in the baby, you know, mars- like marsupial, what's it called? Like a baby Bjorn, you know, the little yep. carrier. Yep. On your chest. Have my fencing bag on my back. <laughs> <laughs> have my fencing bag on my back. And then my little, um, the little playpen, pack and play yep. in one hand. And then I would arrive at training, open up the pack and play and put her in there. And I'd be breastfeeding. So I'd like take breaks from training. And, uh, and she would just be like fascinated with a toy I'd put a toy in there and she'd like play with it. And then she'd like, look at all the people walking by and she'd be in the gym for like, I'm not joking, four or five hours per day, not at a time, like two hours yeah, in yeah. the morning and two, three hours in the evening. Mm-hmm. And she was great. So that was, you know, it wasn't super easy because taking your kid to work with you is never the number one choice, but it was all I could do at that time. So but your That's club was supportive and it. your your teammates and all the other fencers there were supportive. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah they were great because she was pretty easy. She wasn't like fussy or anything. So they thought it was hilarious. You know, they're like, we can't believe you're bringing your kid every day to, to school, to work. <laughs> I'm like, well, what else am I going to do? Um, and I remember the one big challenge of training, because I don't remember any challenges of training while being pregnant outside of like general tiredness. And not wanting to harm the baby, right? Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't want to push myself too much because I want to be a responsible, like, uh, right. primary caregiver. I'm, mm-hmm. like, supporting her. So I think if I put myself under too much stress, it was my first baby, so I was a little more, like, worried about everything. I was like, I think I would put her under some sort of stress. So I was just like, I'm just going to take it easy. But when she was born, let the stress games begin. <laughs> when she was born, I remember, I remember my whole mentality had to change because – I just couldn't train any as long as I wanted to mm-hmm. because she was there, you know, in the afternoon I had to be in the house with her so she could have her nap. I had to leave training at a certain time because she just couldn't handle it anymore. And the responsibility of being a parent made me really put limits on my training. And I remember thinking all my life, I was like, if I just train a little bit more, then I could just be a little bit better. And then I can just win that little extra match and maybe the Olympics one day. And that was the first time when I was just like, this is all I can do. You know, I just reached my limit and I'm like, I cannot do physically any more than this because I have to obviously prioritize her. And so that was a good, it was a good phasing into retirement because I think when Mm -hmm. you retire, you can go from, if only I'd given more, you know, and you can really live with that regret. And I'm like, I don't have that regret. I did literally as much as I could. And I wasn't as successful as I would have wanted, but it's fine. So that was a, a positive coming from a negative, I guess. You know? Yeah. And I, that's what I was going to, you know, kind of ask was that did, did becoming a mother almost make you a better athlete and competitor? Did it, you know, it changed um, your perspective on the importance of winning everything, you know, of being perfect, you know, or were you okay with like, this is the amount that I can do and I'm going to do the best that I can. I've got this other thing going on, you know, maybe, um, not that fencing wasn't important or that the results weren't important, but they weren't the only thing like did, did being, becoming a mom kind of change perspective in that for you at all? Well, it changed my perspective on training I don't think it changed my perspective on competing because competing is such a short window. You're mm-hmm. there for the day, right? Yeah. And I always wanted to win. So it didn't ever change my perspective on competing. Although I do remember at the Olympics in the break of my match, because I only had one match because I lost the first round. Um, I remember 
seeing my husband and seeing Gaia in the little, like he was holding her in the little baby snuggly, like on his chest. Right. Mm -hmm. And baby Bjorn. And I remember like waving at them, giving them a little wave in between the rounds. And I'm thinking I should be concentrating. I have like another three minutes to fence here. And it's only like, I don't know what it was like eight, seven or something like this. And, and I was obviously concentrating on the match, but there was a part of me that was like, Oh, hi cutie. (laughs) So maybe subconsciously it changed my perspective on competition, but it clearly consciously and subconsciously changed my perspective on training for sure, which was a very positive thing. I thought it was a really good thing in the end to have that limit to understand this is as much as I can do and I can do no more, you know? And so you, you, you've written a book, um, you have a daughter now at this point. And so then after London 2012, you retired from competitive fencing. So how was the transition for you? Because you had already established that you could write a book and you had, um, you know, a family to take care of was the transition out of competitive fencing, easier for you there are a lot of athletes right now um out of the states for sure like apollo ono and michael phelps talking about uh the weight of gold and the olympics and how you know depression and mental health issues and naomi osaka had some issues with the french open and she ended up dropping out because she had some mental health issues and i'm wondering if you had already seen a, a, a way forward out of competitive fencing with you know having had the success of being an author, a published author, but also, you know, having, having a a daughter and, um, you know, just another, another path to move on to with your life. Sure. I was always super keen to be a mom. That was like, as aggressive as my voice can sound, I realize now hearing myself sometimes I'm like, I sound so angry all the time. (laughs) Like, come on, let's go. (laughs) So as aggressive as my voice can sound, um, my husband always says, the most surprising thing is how sweet and nurturing you can be so often. (laughs) Thank you. He goes, when I first met you, I never assumed that about you. Um, I don't know how that, how I'm supposed to feel about that. (laughs) I know. Thanks. Um, (laughs) Do you need me to pour you a cup of juice? No, he, um, no, he was just surprised that I was, you know, mm, like I was always good with kids in a playful way, but I always like to be good with kids also in like a nurturing way. Mm -hmm. And so being a parent was really like a dream come true. I just loved being a mom. I loved taking care of my little girl. I loved like watching her learn things, seeing her struggle and, you know, sort of watching her overcome things and helping her understand certain things, you know, and it's been amazing. And then at a certain point, so it was great when Gaia was, when Gaia was a baby, the first child, my first child in 2011, she was born. Then I was just, I was just a mom for a long time. I went back and did a couple of fencing events, but that was it. And then, um, and then when I got pregnant with Allegra, my second baby, it was great. And also super easy pregnancy. Everything was fine. And then she, and then after about a year of being home with her, I was just like, I had two kids at home and I was like, I think I'm going crazy. I think I'm losing my mind. And I remember in the car, my my daughter said, mommies don't have jobs, just daddies have jobs. And I was just like, my fingers on the, on the, on the (laughs) steering wheel just went like, (laughs) 
And so I said to Gaia, I was like, well, you know that mommy had a job before I was an athlete and that was my job. And I'm like, I got to play sports just as a job. Mm -hmm. And she goes, really? And I said, yeah, that's right. And that was before you were born. And she goes, yeah, but now you don't have a job. And I was like, shut up, you little truth teller. <laughs> so, <laughs> who, ta- who taught you to be honest? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, mommy. Who taught Damn you it. to observe the world in accurate fashion and to use your critical reasoning skills? Get back in the womb. <laughs> Try again. Um, so, so what, so what I did was I just went back to fencing. I just was like, I just need to go and I just need to fence once or twice. And I just went actually just to fence. Like mm-hmm. to, I went to a local club and I just walked in and I said, Hey, can I fence? And they were like, yeah, sure. So I like got on my equipment and like the old rusty lunge and, and, uh, and did a couple nights of fencing. And then later I got a phone call from the, the opposite club. There were two clubs. Now they're united. Okay. But before they were two separate clubs, one in front of the other in the same hallway mm-hmm. in the same gym. Oh. And the coach, a coach from the other club phoned and said, hi, I've heard you are back in fencing. I know who you are. And I was wondering if you want to come and be a coach. And I'm like, a coach? <laughs> no, I swore I would never be a coach because all the coaches I know who have families are too busy with their families to take care of the sport. And all the coaches who do not have families are great coaches. I have a family. I cannot be a coach and I don't mm-hmm. even want to be a coach. And he was like, okay, well, just, you know, think about it. And then I was in the backyard teaching my daughter how to swing a baseball bat because she was like, didn't know how to hit a baseball. And so she was just three. And I was like, okay, come on. You just, I'm like, watch the little ball. And when it comes, you just, you, I was was like, turn on, teach her how to swing. And she couldn't do it. And I said, okay. And I just realized if there's a better way, I can't teach her. I just have to like help her. So I said, ah, and I just said, breathe, swing. And I threw the ball. She breathed and she swung. And she hit the ball and she was like, ah, and she was excited. I was like, you know, it was as if she had just, you know, won the world series. I was like, that feels amazing. And I thought, is this what coaching is? Like (laughs) helping people realize that they can do something Mm -hmm. like control their body and their mind together to like accomplish something. I'm like, this is wonderful. And so I called the coach back and I was like, heck yeah. I said, I'll come over and see if you want me. And he goes, sure. So went over there and then started giving lessons and then got into the, the coaching system. So you have to take level one and level two and level three. And right now I'm in, I'm waiting to do my level two test. So nice. So then I will become like an accredited national Italian coach. Not that I'm going to coach the Italian national team, but I mean like you have to, there's a really stringent level of accreditation here where you can't sign up fencers for a competition unless you're a level two accredited coach. So it's pretty complicated. Um, and I've just opened up a little fencing club and I've been doing that ever since. So that was my, my step out of, out of like being stuck at home. And I still, that's, it's a super part-time gig that pays almost no money, but it's incredibly rewarding. I'm very thankful. My husband is the sole, practically the sole breadwinner for now, Mm -hmm. um, in the family. And, um, but my daughters now say they're like, I, cause I'm coaching the oldest one. Just, it's just for fun. I'm not yeah, like yeah. a high level coach with her or anything. I'm just like, we do mostly, you know, movement, like how to jump properly, how to throw, how to, you know, catch and like also how to fence. So we do a little bit of like general motor skills and then fencing on the side. And I love when I hear her be like, Oh, it's great to have a mom as a sports coach. I love having a sports teacher as a mom. And I'm just like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> now give me 50 pushups. <laughs> but it's um it's very I don't do it obviously just to hear her say she's proud of me (laughs) although Um, 
Although, it's nice. <laughs> no, I hear it because it obviously gives me personal dignity. And um, <laughs> great, I've gone from doing what my coaches want me to do to doing what my daughter wants me to do. <laughs> when is it going to be me time? <laughs> Teasing. Um, but I think it's very important to to do something outside of, even if it's earning money or not, outside of the immediate family, mm-hmm. just to give a different perspective, you know, because trying to manage someone else's kids helps you manage your own kids in a way, because I'm like, these kids won't do what I want just because I'm their mom. I have to convince them that, that running into a, a swinging rope and trying to jump through it is a good idea, you know? So it's a, that's a really nice challenge. It's great that after, you know, 20 years of competing um, and four Olympics that you still want to stay involved in fencing. I think one of the challenges we have with with women is when, you know, through careers and having children, like they drop out of sports. They they don't. And there's a, a movement over over here, I'm not sure, about Europe, about, you know, trying to empower women. Like, how do we keep girls in sport? And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that I think is, well, we have to show them that you can stay in sport as a mom. You can stay in sport when you have a career. Like, you can stay in sport in your 40s and your 50s. Like, we need to see grandma. My mom plays pickleball. Um and you, you know, you need to see, oh, nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves it. She's, she's always like, I'm doing better at this, or I did this amazing shot this week. So it's, it, she, she's still in like her seventies wants to get better. You know what I mean? And I think we need to see, right. We need to see women in all levels. It is like as a coach, as like players, like in sports. Cause that's what kids, that's what kids are really going to see. I mean, I'm excited to see women's champions league professional soccer, but that's not what's going to keep mm. girls and women in 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 sports because it's just a very f- small percentage of the population, right? So I think it's really great that you know mm-hmm. fencing didn't burn you out to the point where you can't still love it and what you know um, coach in and maybe sometimes like spar once in a while or or whatever. So that's that's awesome. Sure. Yeah. No, no, I really, I really love coaching. Like I love teaching. First of all, I studied to be a teacher. And the only thing I don't like about teaching is that it's a bit physically restrictive. Like you don't get to do as much physical movement. I would love to, you know, I would love to see more, more physical activity in the actual process of learning, Mm -hmm. you know, of learning other other sort of things like when we're here doing homework you know letting the girls get up and like walk around or do something like okay let's get up and move and then let's come back and do this little thing you know do our little exercises of you know mathematics or whatever we're doing and um and I truly love teaching sports because I see kids who are so awkward and so unsure of themselves and I never count them out because I was the most awkward kid you can imagine like long spaghetti legs and like uncoordinated my hair weighed more than the rest of my body and I'm like Arr. it was it was ridiculous how bad I was and then I ended up to be a high level athlete so I can I as a coach I never count anybody out I'm like you need to be a little bit lucky you need to be mm-hmm. well supported mm-hmm. by your team and your family and your community but I as a coach will provide all the support they want I so that's the part of teaching that I really like is taking the most uncoordinated sides of people and making them see that they can get like incredibly better with just a little bit of like courage and practice. That's all you need. 
And so in 2016, you were inducted into the Alberta Sports Hall of Fame. So how did it feel? Oh, yeah. Next to my first coach, <laughs> he signed me up for that. It was so nice. <laughs> yeah. But how did it feel to be recognized for all of your accomplishments? It was wonderful. Yeah, it was really nice. It was great. It doesn't feel like... I think it's nice after you've retired to get that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. obviously. Because when you're in it, you are always like, oh, yeah, well, I've still got so much to accomplish. Oh, yeah, I can't yeah, stop yeah. to enjoy it. And then when you're older, you're like, that was pretty cool. So I took it as a, that was pretty cool kind of, you know. Yeah, it felt really nice. It was, it was lovely to be honored. Second last question. Yeah, sure. Which events at Tokyo 2021 will you be watching and you can't say fencing? Yeah, okay. Um, I will watch whatever is on if my husband is watching it because he's a super sports fan. Um, so I will have to watch some race sports, <laughs> but I'll watch the game sports. I love tennis. Um, I will watch gymnastics of course, cause that's awesome. Mm -hmm. And I like performance sports where it's like an artistic performance, like diving or gymnastics yeah, or a game, you know, like basketball or something. I'm, Desperate to watch surfing. I can't wait to see how they're going to do it. I started surfing mm. as like a, an old middle-aged mama. I was like 40. And there were some big waves here in, in the wintertime. And my nephew, and my nephew, my brother-in-law is a big surfer. And he's like, you guys should come and surf. And my husband's like, okay, I'll try. And I didn't, I have never wanted to surf. And I was like, I didn't want to be like the only one not surfing. So I was like, <laughs> yeah, I'll try too. And I wanted to like show off and show them that I was good. And surprisingly for an awkward athlete like me, I could totally do it because it's like fencing position. Mm -hmm. They're like, so you get up and you bounce on the board. And I'm like, oh, like this. And I'm like practically just on guard. And I'm like, okay. You know? <laughs> so we've gone it and like lots of vacations. We just go and surf now. It's super nice. So I'll watch surfing. Um, I'm, I can't wait to see that. And I don't know. That's probably it. Surfing and tennis would be the top two in basketball, I guess. You, what are you going to watch? Uh, well, I can't say fencing because I'm not an Olympian. So I'm going to put that up there. <laughs> I also like the volleyball, volleyball sports, beach oh, and court. Yeah. yeah. And um, diving, mm -hmm. diving for me. I don't know why. But I love diving. Synchro 10 meter platform. I'm like, it's super interesting, isn't it? Holy, the handstand yeah, ones. You can watch their faces and you can see like this like concentration. The handstand ones being the scariest. Totally. Totally. Oh that God. scares the bejesus out of me. I know. Yeah. So amazing. Yeah. Real last question. Yeah. Can I just come and train with you for like a week? <laughs> yeah, sure. Here? I don't even know how I'd make that happen, but yeah, I definitely, yeah, definitely want to. Yeah, anytime. Plus, we have a bet going now, so That's right. something's going to have to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Shireen, thank you so much for taking the time to chat sure, with me today. my pleasure, um, my pleasure. It was an absolute pleasure to, to meet with you. Yeah, and um, if you ever come around here and do a competition, let me know, you know? I'd love to meet up sometime. I will make a point <laughs> to, sure. to pick one that is nearby. Great. And on that note, uh, again, thank you so much. This has been a blast. Thank you. It's been super fun. If you come through here, let me know. We'll have a nice dinner and chit chat. I can't imagine we have any shortage of things to talk about. I will make a point to do that. You are a lovely conversation partner because you give as much as you get. And I very much appreciate it. So thank you. Awesome. All right. Bye. Thanks so much, Shereen. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode. 
For more episodes, subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. Please rate, review, and share it too. For show notes, go to silvergoldwomen.com forward slash episode hyphen 11. Follow this podcast on Facebook and Twitter at Silver Gold Women. Music for this podcast was crafted by the extremely talented Outwild. He knows what I like. Every time I hear these beats, I dance in my seat. If you like his music, you can listen on SoundCloud at It's Outwild. Follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at It's Outwild. Until next time, play hard, play smart.